This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Back when I was in college, I met every week for an entire semester with a Mormon missionary named Charles. Now, Charles had visited one of my religion classes and invited any Christian in the class to come meet with him to learn more about Mormonism. And so, of course, I jumped at the chance. I figured that would be a great opportunity to turn the tables and show him the false gospel of Mormon theology while also sharing with him the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it went well for a while, but our meeting sadly ended ended with Charles refusing to accept that salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. He just wouldn't receive the truth. And I still pray even today that somewhere some other Christian finally got to Charles again with the truth of the gospel and that the Lord finally saved him. But that experience really came back to me as I was reading the book written by my next guest, Micah Wilder. Micah is a former Mormon missionary himself and has written the incredible story of how he left Mormonism and came to true faith in Jesus Christ. His book is called Passport to Heaven, the true story of a zealous Mormon missionary who discovers the Jesus he never knew. And Micah, just wonderful to have you with us. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Janet. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, you bet. You were a very zealous Mormon, weren't you? You came from a very zealous home. You were ready to go on the mission field. I mean, you it seemed like you were all in just from the very beginning and had all the surroundings that kind of made you the perfect Mormon. Yeah. I mean, every every aspect, every facet of my life was, was deeply rooted and enmeshed in Mormonism. My mother uh, was a professor at BYU. My dad was a high priest in the Mormon church, and it, it was my life. Yeah. Now, how far back in your family did Mormonism go? How deeply rooted were you? So interestingly enough, uh, my parents were actually converts to Mormonism. And so they were both raised in nominal Christian homes. My mother was raised in a Methodist home, and my father in a Southern Baptist home. And when they were in their early 20s and graduate students at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, two Mormon missionaries knocked on their door and introduced them to the Mormon gospel, and they were enamored um, by both the missionaries and the message that they brought. They joined the church, were baptized, and, and raised us children in it. Wow, that's something. So when you were growing up and you were very involved in the church, what was it like to live out your life as a Mormon? Because for a lot of Christians, they just have no frame of reference as to what it's like to grow up in Mormonism. But what was your experience like, just theologically, but also just socially? And what was it like to be in that world? Yeah, so so Mormonism is very much more than just a church you attend on a Sunday morning. It, it is very much a cultural identity. Um, I actually grew up in the Midwest, but I moved to Utah for my high school years, and Utah, of course, is very saturated uh, with a Mormon population. I lived in an area that was about 98% Latter-day Saint, and so all of my friends, my community, uh, my, my peers, my religious leaders, everything was saturated in this Mormon community uh, within the state of Utah, and, and every part of my life was 
rooted and grounded in my religious identity, much like Saul of Tarsus. And so everything Mm -hmm. that I was doing was not only for myself, but also to establish my righteousness with God through the tenets of Mormonism. Right. And so everybody knows that the Mormon communities that you're talking about, very family oriented, very friendly. Mormons are some of the nicest people anybody will ever meet. There's a strong culture, as you say, of community and so forth. But what did you believe specifically about God and about self? Salvation, how you were saved, just for people who don't know much about Mormon theology, what what were you steeped in as far as where you thought you were going and what you believed about God and who he was? So God to me um, in Mormonism was actually not always God. We were taught that God had actually once been a man yep. who himself had progressed to become God and not only that, but that we, as, as people living on this earth, had the potential ourselves to progress to become gods ourselves. And so this process of eternal progression is through obedience. And so my right standing with God was, to me, contingent upon my faithfulness to the laws and the ordinances of Mormonism. And so I wanted to have God's love, and I wanted his favor and his forgiveness, and I wanted to know that I was right in his eyes, and and I believed that the only way to have that assurance was for me, myself, to become righteous, right, and and by my own merits to establish worthiness before God. And so it really propelled me to to being a very zealous young man who was was desperate for a relationship with God, but ignorant as to the true way to have a relationship with God, which of course is only through Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And so I was a very devout Mormon man because I wanted the very thing that I believed I needed to earn from God, which was his love. Yes. Well, man, that is a hard road to hoe. But when you're talking about eternal progression, that really stuns a lot of people when they finally learn that about Mormon theology, the idea that you believe at some point you can become a God the way that God was once man and became a God. Did you ever doubt that at all? Was there ever any moment where you said, wow, this just this is insane. Like, how can I become a God? How is that even possible? Did you ever think that way at any point? Not really. In fact, as I I grew up and got, you know, more deeply mature in my kind of spiritual theology and Mormonism, I actually liked the idea because it to me, it gave me a way to relate with God, mm. right? So I figured, well, God was once like me living on a planet somewhere, and he dealt with the same things that I'm dealing with. Therefore, you know, he can see me with compassion. And then to believe that I myself could progress to one day becoming like God was actually something that was exciting to me. But of course, now as a biblical Christian and through the Word of God, I realized just how, I mean, just, just to be frank, I mean, how blasphemous that idea is, because it is completely removing God from his nature is revealed through his word. Right. But how interesting what you just said, that that gave you a point of relating to God. It's That's interesting. But of course, in Christian theology, God became man in Jesus Christ. And so, you know, he was like we are, but without sin. It's interesting how that's twisted in Mormonism. Now, you ended up going on your two-year mission, which a lot of young Mormon men do, to go out and convert people to Mormonism. You ended up going to Florida and that was where things kind of changed around for you quite a bit. What, tell us a little bit about your experience going on the mission field. 
Yeah, so being a Mormon missionary is a very unique experience, and I think it's important for Christians to to have a frame of reference of what it's like for these young men and women that go out, and when we see them out on the streets, to really be able to see them through the lens of love and compassion. Uh, I was leaving my family for two years. My, my, my communication with them for this two-year experience was limited to weekly emails and phone calls twice a year. So hmm. only two times a year could I pick up the phone and call my mom and my dad on Mother's Day and on Christmas. Um, we had a very regiment schedule. We had to wake up at 6.30 a.m. every day, 365 days a year for two years, do two or three hours of study, and then go out for 10 to 12 hours a day, proselytizing, come home, uh, do more studying, and then go to bed at, at 10.30 p.m. and mm. do that all over again. And we were out all day, every day. We were knocking on doors, talking to strangers, communicating with people, uh, doing everything that we could to convert them to the Mormon Church. We weren't allowed to read the newspaper, magazines, go on the Internet uh, outside of our emails, and, and it was a very regimented kind of military-like um, experience that brought a lot of, you know, for a lot of missionaries, they experience depression and, and homesickness, and they really struggle uh, even within their own faith. And, and I mention that because we sometimes see these Mormon missionaries like they're this bulletproof, right? <laughs> these bulletproof guys and yeah. girls out, and they're just so intimidating, and they know everything about doctrine, and we forget that they are really just kids. I mean, I was 19. Mormon missionaries now are even 18 years old, and, and so many of them are very uncertain about their own faith, about their own experience with God, and, and they truly need love and compassion from the Christian body. Yeah, that's totally true. Well, and where you went, Orlando, there are a lot of Christians in Orlando, so that was kind of a, a culture shift for you. Yeah, yeah, we kind of sent right to the right to the Bible Belt. <laughs> Which is not a bad thing. I don't want to give away the best part of the story because we're going to be coming up on a break here in a second, but one of the things that you talk about when you're discussing this turning point is the impact that a pastor there in Florida Florida had on you and how his willingness to share the true gospel of Jesus Christ with you ended up changing your life when you had actually gone there to change other people's lives. We're going to get more into the story of Michael Wilder when we come back talking about his book, Passport to Heaven. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Janet Mefford. On a 100-degree day in Ethiopia, Africa, hundreds gathered for Sunday worship outdoors, and some walked an hour to be there. Afterward, 30-year-old Cademan frantically copied scriptures from an old Bible to a piece of paper. Then his face turned sad as he closed the Bible and handed it back to its owner, one of only a few in that church of hundreds to have a Bible. You see, Cademan loves the Lord, leads his family, and is faithful at Sunday worship, but he's never read a single verse in his own Bible because Bibles are very difficult to obtain where he lives. Whoever comes our way and is able to give us a Bible, it will be a great blessing. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's Word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible. $50 sends 10. Call 800-YES-WORD. 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
Thank you. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Well, you likely have seen Mormon missionaries on the streets over the years. I know I have. I've talked to a lot of them over the years coming to the door or the Mormon missionary that I witnessed to when I was in college. Lots of people have interacted with Mormon missionaries. And it is very evident when you talk to a Mormon missionary how different Mormonism is from Christianity. And we are talking with Micah Wilder about his book, Passport to Heaven, the true story of a zealous Mormon missionary who discovers the Jesus he never knew. We were discussing, Micah, before we went to the break the fact that you went on your mission to Orlando, Florida, and there you encountered a Baptist pastor in his church. Tell us what happened when you finally met up with this pastor. Yeah, so I actually deliberately confronted a Baptist pastor, uh, (laughs) believing that I could convince him and reason with him and show him that Mormonism was, in fact, the truth and the only true way to eternal life with God. And I think that's kind of a testament to how zealous I was. Uh, and, and how strong my testimony was in Mormonism. And so we ended up uh, engaging with this man uh, in a personal uh, meeting with him, my Mormon mission companion and I, and we had the opportunity to sit down with him and share our beliefs with him. And one thing I want to emphasize before I continue about this pastor was that his his method of engaging with us was very different than what I was accustomed to. And what I mean is that he was very loving, and he was very compassionate, and he was very kind and gentle um, and, and respectful. And honestly, those were attributes that, that I was very unfamiliar with in mm-hmm. most of my engagements with, with people, and, and even Christians. So you mentioned, you know, Florida, there's a lot of Christians, and I engaged a lot of Christians on my Mormon mission, and a very common response that I would get from them after knocking on their door would be something like, well, you... You guys are in a cult, and you're going to hell. Now get off my doorstep and never come back. And then they'd slam the door in our face. And I remember um, walking away from those doors, and and their treatment of us just drove me deeper into my religious convictions in Mormonism. And it it just made me say to myself, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want anything to do with that. And so I know that's a bit of a sidetrack, but I do want to emphasize that Pastor uh, Benson was his name. His approach to us was very love-centered and very Christ-centered, and I think that's so instrumental and important when we engage with non-believers. Yes. And so we go through this process of, of sharing our belief system with him, and, and I think it's safe to say that Mormons believe in works-based righteousness, that we believe that there were certain works and ordinances that we had to do, certain uh, laws and commandments that we had to follow in order to establish a right standing with God, and that's what we believe the gospel to be. 
And so after we shared this with this pastor, uh, he looked at us and he said, guys, I, I appreciate your zeal. I can see that you're very dedicated to what you believe, but I have to tell you that the message you just shared with me is not the gospel as, as is revealed in the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And at that point, he continued, and, and he opened up the Word of God, he went straight to Scripture, and he professed the goodness and, and grace of God revealed in Christ, and he shared the simple, beautiful, life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ with me as a 19-year-old Mormon missionary in a way that I had never before heard it my entire life. Wow. And I was challenged by this, and I was convicted by this, this simple message that Jesus Christ alone had paid in full measure the penalty that I owe to God, that he had completed the work that was necessary to reconcile me to God through his death, burial, and resurrection, and that by faith in his work, I could be given the guarantee of my right standing with God, that I could know that I had the assurance of the forgiveness of my sins through the shed blood of Christ, not based on anything that I was doing, but based on what God had done for me in sending Jesus to be the propitiation for my sins. Mm -hmm. And of course, this message, right, for my grace you have been saved through faith, it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It was so contradictory, it was antithetical to the things that I had been taught my entire life, and, and I didn't really even know how to respond to that, but I was, I was frustrated. I was actually angry because of this pastor's message, because the Word of God was convicting me, and, and it was challenging me to, to see God's love in a way that I had never before seen it. That's amazing. I just want to yell, preach it at you, Micah, as you're going through the gospel, because it's just so wonderful to hear. You can never get tired of hearing it. As many years as I've been a Christian, I just smile and rejoice every time I hear what you just said about the Lord Jesus and how he saved us, not because of our righteousness, but because he was righteous and merciful to sinners. So you ended up reading the Bible for yourself, the New Testament, I guess it was, during your mission time as a Mormon missionary. What happened when you did that? Yeah, so the last thing this pastor said to me was, go home and read the Bible like a child. And so I took his challenge initially, very arrogantly, believing that reading the Bible was only going to prove Mormonism to be true. Hmm. And so I read the Bible for the rest of my Mormon mission. I had about 20 months remaining of this two-year mission commitment. And in that time frame, I read the New Testament in its entirety 12 times from beginning to end. And it was through the reading of the Word of God that the Word of God began to wash me, began to remove my blindness, and, and to show me the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness towards me in Christ Jesus, and to convict me of, of, of my destitute nature and, and the sin in which I was dead in my trespasses, and that the only hope for redemption was not me proving my worthiness to God, but me receiving that God had proved His love for me and shown His love for me, and that while I was still a sinner, that Christ Jesus died for me. Mm-hmm. And so I went through this very tumultuous and painful and, and, and challenging process of recognizing the sufficiency of Jesus, removing my own pride, my own works, my own righteousness from the equation, and turning and facing Jesus and trusting that what He did for me was all sufficient to cleanse me of sin. So wonderful. But then, of course, you had a bit of a reckoning because you had to go back and deal with the LDS leaders, and this was a bit awkward. Uh, what happened? I mean, how did your Mormon leaders react? when you came back and you were no longer a believing Mormon, but you were giving a testimony as a newly born-again Christian. 
Yeah, so this transformation and, and my born-again experience actually happened while I was still a Mormon missionary, <laughs> and it eventually led me to professing uh, a testimony in front of my missionary peers and, and leaders of my newfound faith in Christ, and that ultimately led me to um, getting kicked off my mission three weeks early <laughs> and going back to Utah and facing you know the, the repercussions of, of faith in Christ. And you know, one of the things that I, I recognized at that time of my life, I mean, I was just about to turn 21, and I was facing the cost of losing my family, my friends, my culture, my community, my re- my reputation, even my education, career path, scholarship through BYU. I mean, everything that I'd ever known and loved was because of my religious identity. And, and I remember having to come to that crossroads where I recognized that to have Jesus meant to have everything that if I knew Jesus and, and, and knew what he'd done for me, that that was all sufficient to, to give me everything that I would ever need, and that if I trusted in Christ, it doesn't matter what I lose or what I give up or what I walk away from, because what I had in Christ alone was enough. And, uh, and I took that hope back to my family, back to my, my friends, and I shared with them what I had come to know, and I shared with them that same challenge that that Baptist pastor had given me, and that was simply to approach the Word of God, to go to the source, and, and to trust that it face value, and to allow God through His Word to transform their hearts and lives. And uh, I planted that seed, and uh, each one of the members of my family, and God began to work individually in their lives and uh, and bring those to fruition. So great. I mean, to see your family come to Christ. So it turned out you're a great missionary. It's just you were in the wrong religion to begin with. <laughs> when you came to know the Lord, boy, you started bearing a lot of fruit, it seems. Well, that's the power of the Word of God, right? It doesn't return void. And, yep. and, and that's what's so profound about when I sat down with that Baptist pastor, that of all the things he could have done, he simply said, go to the Word of God. Mm-hmm. It's living, and it's active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And I, and I see how so many Christians we take for granted God's Word, and we take for granted the, the, the tool and, and the weapon that it is in, in, in preaching the gospel to the lost. And um, it's amazing that God saved my brother, my sister, my BYU professor mom, my high priest dad, <laughs> and, and opened their eyes to, to the glorious gospel of grace. And it's all a testament to how good God is to, to the unworthy. Praise the Lord. He is. He is indeed. And I know you're in ministry now. People can check it out at adamsroadministry.com. But when you say, Micah, after you know writing everything that you've put out in your book about your testimony and your story, which people can read about in Passport to Heaven, and saying what you said here on the program, when you say Jesus is enough, that's not just an empty phrase to you. I mean, when you're faced with this idea that you have to go home to such a tight-knit community where everything is centered around Mormonism and you have to be in trouble with your church leaders and you've got to face all of your friends and your community uh, looking maybe to some like a traitor, it takes on a new meaning, doesn't it, to say that Jesus is enough? And, and how has Jesus remained enough for you since then? I remember reading John 6.35 as a Mormon missionary, and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I remember when I read that, I wasn't a Christian yet, but I was being drawn into a relationship with God. And I remember crying out to God in my heart, I want that. I I, I want that bread. I I want to be satisfied. How can I be satisfied? And, and, And that was what I came to realize is that everything I'd ever been looking for in my entire life was 
the summation of that was Christ and, and Him alone, and, and to realize that, that, like Paul said, everything I once counted as gain in my life, I now count as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And so that's the hope that we have as Christians. And so my testimony hasn't changed, right? It doesn't. There's nothing in the world that can satisfy me or, or make me right with God outside of Jesus Christ alone. And so no matter what I lose or give up, even if it's to my own life, I know that it's worth it because there is greater value in the gospel and in Christ Jesus alone. And, and I just praise God that he's opened my eyes, that he's continuing to preach the gospel to the lost, that there is no person or situation that is beyond the reaches of his incredible grace. Oh, that's so true. And and what a wonderful testimony you have, Micah. It's so encouraging to all of us. And you could read more about Micah's story in his book. It's called Passport to Heaven. Micah Wilder with us. Micah, so good to have you here. God bless you. And I just pray that you'll continue to have a really fruitful ministry. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Janet. You bet. God bless. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Boy, it is getting pretty crazy out there. We were talking on yesterday's show about the developments in the Southern Baptist Convention and the email that was leaked, written by Russell Moore in February of 2020. Then he comes out with this letter to J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. This is just getting nuts. Mike Stone is one of the men on the conservative side of the aisle who is seeking to become the next president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And it really seems when you look at these tactics of both the leaked email and the leaked letter from Russell Moore, the former head of the ERLC, that it is a political move and that they want to get him out of any contention to become president of the Southern Baptist Convention. They want Al Mohler. Al Mohler is the Russell Moore buddy. Uh, Russell Moore, many people have argued over the years, could never have taken that helm at the ERLC without Al Mohler. And they want Mohler to take over the convention. And the conservatives are fighting tooth and nail, having seen what CRT, critical race theory, has wrought in these seminaries and the duplicity that they've seen with Dr. Mohler over the years. A lot of these men and women want Mike Stone or Randy Adams, who's another conservative who's running. So I don't know why these tactics are being used, but I do know that Mike Stone can really respond effectively when he is attacked the way he's been attacked in this letter. And the gist of it, it's 14 pages. I know most of you will have no interest or time to actually go through and read this, but essentially it is Russell Moore putting down all of his concerns about the the crisis of sexual abuse as it relates to the SBC Executive Committee, which was uh, where Mike Stone served. And he makes all of these allegations. So I just want to let Mike Stone speak in his own words from a video he released responding to all of these allegations. And he said first that as a victim of childhood sexual abuse himself, he found the latest attack from Russell Moore to be absolutely slanderous. And it is as inflammatory, he said, as it is inaccurate. Here it is. Listen to cut one. The letter itself is incredible. 
That is, it is without credibility. Think about it for just a moment. Here's a man who's the highest positioned ethicist in the Southern Baptist Convention, at least he was until just a few days ago. And if you take his letter at face value, then he has known about cover-up, intimidation, bullying, stonewalling, barriers, pressure, uh, all of these sorts of things against victims of sex abuse. He's known about lies and backroom deals and corruption. And he's, not, he's known about it not for days or weeks or months. He's literally known about it supposedly for years while he has not breathed a word. Meanwhile, he's publishing a book called The Courage to Stand. Russell hasn't stood behind these accusations. He does even have the professional decency to issue this as a press release through credible news sources. No, instead, Southern Baptists become uh, privy to this supposedly private correspondence when either Russell or J.D. Greer or someone to whom they leaked it share it with an anonymous uh, blogger over on Twitter. That is not the way that professionals deal with their uh, information. And quite frankly, even more importantly, that's not how the people of God deal with it. It is scandalous. It's unscriptural. It's ungodly. It's outrageous. It is, and it doesn't follow Matthew 18 either, does it? You have all kinds of anonymous accusations in the more missives, and one does wonder how a guy who wrote a book called The Courage to Stand didn't have the courage to stand in February of 2020 if all of these nefarious things were going on. Why didn't he do anything about it, and why hasn't he named names? Paul called out Peter. So what's the issue? Now, Mike Stone gives a history of his involvement on the issue of sexual abuse within the SBC. This is cut to. The very first act that I did as chairman of the SBC Executive Committee, this was back in the summer of 2018. I was elected June of 2018 in Dallas. The very first thing that I did was I worked with the paid staff to put together a motion to accept a request from the ERLC that we give them what ultimately uh, was $250,000. Now, it's not common practice for the the chairman of the overall committee to make recommendations and motions within the subcommittee, but I requested the privilege to do that because of my own personal story, not known to anybody else in the world at that time except me and the man who abused me. I wanted the privilege of initiating this action on the part of the executive committee. And not to give you too much detail, more information that you want, but after that was unanimously passed by the subcommittee, and I knew that it was going to be approved by the full plenary body, I left that committee room, went to a nearby bathroom where I vomited. Not because I'm weak or not because I was upset, but just the emotion. Years, literally decades of emotion came bubbling forth as I was so grateful to be a part of addressing this horrific and heinous injustice committed against the most vulnerable members of our Southern Baptist churches. And then to think that somebody with that passion and that personal past is later going to get together in a back room with a subcommittee and conspire to cover up for pedophiles and the molestations they commit against our most vulnerable children, it's outlandish. 
Well, it is. And then he addresses what Moore said about the bylaws work group, which in the letter, Moore says there was a disastrous move by the bylaws work group to exonerate, quote unquote, quickly and by fiat churches with credible allegations of negligence and mistreatment of sexual abuse survivors, which is kind of weird considering Mike Stone's own personal story. Listen to what he says. Cut three. That is provably blatantly false. That committee did not exonerate anyone or any church because that's not a power that we have, and we explicitly stated so. He even puts the word exonerated in quotation marks. It is absolutely false. But I want you to think for just a moment. I think at that time there were 10 or 11 members of the bylaws work group. President J.D. Greer was actually assigned uh, to that work group because uh, as the president, he's a member of the EC and uh, was assigned to be a member of that particular subcommittee. That was just sort of a coincidence. It's worth noting that through all of our deliberations, he did not attend any of our meetings, was not engaged in any of the discussions as the bylaws work group, painfully and tearfully, passionately tried to work through this effort together. But the president's absence notwithstanding, the, the bylaws work group is not just some stoic, nameless institution. It was a room filled with Southern Baptists, lay people, business people, an attorney who, while he worked for the Justice Department, helped to establish the Child Sexual Predation Unit. The national president of the WMU was a part of that group. And the idea that that group got together and conspired to cover up pedophilia It would be laughable if it were not so serious. It would be laughable, but it's not laughable. And I don't say this lightly. It's just a bold-faced lie. Good grief. Well, then he goes into a little of his own history. This is cut four. When my story as a victim of sexual abuse first became known, that would have been in the early part of 2019, I was inundated by contacts from my own church family saying basically, Pastor, we finally understand why you have such an adamant zero-tolerance policy for the protection of our children. Uh, I pastor a larger church in a very small rural community, and most of the people in our community do not understand the tight, strict, and stringent requirements that we have for a church member to work with any of our minors, from from the bed babies in the nursery all the way through the seniors in high school. We've actually lost families not because they believe in sexual abuse, but because they don't understand why our policies have to be so tight. All right. Well, when you read through the entire 14 pages of this letter from Russell Moore to J.D. Greer, which was dated May 31st, it becomes obvious who is the target here. And it's Mike Stone. He mentions Mike Stone. He mentions a couple of other names, but it's mainly Mike Stone. And I think also because Mike Stone was involved and headed up this task force that was looking into the ERLC, I think I get the impression at least that Dr. Moore is None too happy about that. None too happy. And I don't believe it has a thing to do with the fact that he just wants to serve Southern Baptists with gospel integrity. Uh, He hasn't shown gospel integrity through basically his entire career at the ERLC. And there have been many, many times where he has been less than truthful himself. So I'm glad Mike Stone is fighting back. We're going to play more of this video for you from Pastor Mike Stone. When we return, you're listening to Janet Meffer today.
After taking the morning after pill, this mom immediately felt sick and nauseated as she tried to end her pregnancy. While searching for medical care, she found a preborn center where she hoped to rule out that she was pregnant. I had an ultrasound done right then and there. After hearing the baby's heartbeat, I instantly thanked God and said, may your will be done, Lord. I'm seven months pregnant now. I thank God every day for my little miracle. Preborn centers are the largest providers of free ultrasounds in America, introducing moms in crisis to the life growing inside of them and sharing the gospel in action. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Will you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-BABY or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Let's just call him Russell's Scorched Earth more. It's crazy, isn't it? It's like burning your house down before you move to go to college or something like that. What You're leaving the Southern Baptist Convention, Russell Moore. Why are you burning the house down on your way out? Why didn't you stay? If you have the courage to stand the name of your book, why in the world didn't you stand and try to fix all the horrible, horrible corruption in the Southern Baptist Convention at the hands of conservatives? I, it's just amazing to me how this guy talks about courage and then he's, you know, skulking off into a corner and whining about something and having his buddies, or maybe he did it himself, leaking all of his slams to try to affect the vote at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting next week. This is going to be crazy. Like I said earlier, Mike Stone is one of the conservative candidates, along with Randy Adams. On the other side, you have Al Moeller, who is Russell Moore's buddy, and you have Ed Litton, who's woke. So I'm sure they're trying to split the vote and trying to make sure that Mueller gets in. I can't think of anything worse for the Southern Baptist Convention for myriad reasons, but I do want to get back to Mike Stone's response to Russell Moore's leaked letter to J.D. Greer, the president of the SBC. And I recognize this is getting a little bit into the weeds for those of you who are not Southern Baptists, but it does matter because Russell Moore has done so much damage. He has contributed so much to the wokeification, as it were, of evangelicalism. He's done nothing but slam conservative evangelicals since the getting into the ERLC. And I've tracked it almost the entire time, actually the entire time. I criticized him in 2014 and I've criticized him ever since. And it's been a litany of things that he's done that have been insulting and demeaning to conservatives. And then he tries to take up certain mantles as if he was always on the right side of this question. He He's just a political operative. 
And, uh, you know, he he never does anything wrong. He never owns up to anything that he's ever done to cause division. He is the quintessential divisive man. And now he's not going quietly into that good night. Oh, no. He's put out this letter. Mike Stone responds, though, by pointing out that at no point, despite all of these accusations against him that he says are false in this most recent letter, at no time has Russell Moore ever personally contacted him. Hmm. How biblical is that? This is cut five. Nobody who knows me believes that I would ever be a part of trying to cover up sexual abuse or silence its victims. That, again, is an outrageous lie. And again, I don't use that lightly toward anyone, but nobody who knows me would believe those accusations. And when I, when I talk about people who know me, let me be clear, that does not include Russ Moore. He has never, though claiming the high moral ground in this issue, he has never, not one time, in a private phone call, email, text message, visit, letter, he has never, not one single time, contacted me privately and personally to confront me about a sin that he thought that I was committing, to caution me about an error that he thought that I was making, or to warn me about a misstep that he thought I was about to lead the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee into. No, rather, uh, he chooses these guerrilla tactics to use some of his own terminology. Well, why would he confront you personally when he could just wait until he left the ERLC and go scorched earth and affect the outcome of the presidential election at the Southern Baptist Convention next week? That's how political operatives do it. And in fact, some people were making the observation on Twitter that Russell Moore, for all of his love for the liberals in the media and all of the arm linking he's done with sites like the Atlantic and the Washington Post over the course of his ERLC headship is just using those same secular tactics to try to destroy his enemies on the right in the Southern Baptist Convention. And then they turn around and talk about how political and horrible the conservatives are. You guys are such hypocrites. It's incredible to me. Here's a hypocritical moment. I'm just going to do a very quick aside because in the course of this letter, he's talking about, oh, all the people who are leaving the Southern Baptist Convention because of all the horrors of these terrible conservatives. He says in here, I cannot tell you how many pastors and leaders have told me that they either keep or wish they could keep the word Baptist out of the name of their churches because they feel ashamed. Excuse me. J.D. Greer, the recipient of this letter, doesn't have the name Baptist in his church name and, in fact, admitted at the time that his name was submitted to become president of the SBC. There were lots of people in his church who came forward and said, we're a Southern Baptist church. These guys are incredible hypocrites. And by the way, Russell Moore went off to a church now that is not a Southern Baptist church. I guess he's one of the very, very wonderful upstanding people who is leaving on principle or or he's being shown the door because we've had enough of it. What is really going on here? This is Mike Stone again, cut six. Part of the problem we have here is we have we have a generation of leaders who were raised in a participation trophy era that think that if you disagree with them about anything that you're attacking them and that they're enduring some kind of trauma or psychological terror. Once again, th- this, this is not the future of the Southern Baptist Convention. And while I'm, while I'm on this point, the outlandish nature, the ungodly, unbiblical nature of Russell's slander against me on this point is only rivaled by the outrageous nature of pastors over on SBC Twitter 
pastors who hear one side of the story and immediately call for me to be removed from any office and banned permanently from any service in the Southern Baptist Convention while simultaneously saying we need an investigation to find out what actually happened. That is as biblically and logically inconsistent as any inconsistency I've ever seen. So what is the bottom line here on Russell Moore and what he just did? Again, Mike Stone, cut seven. I think that Southern Baptists can actually see this for what it is. This letter was not released in a timely manner or in an appropriate forum. It was leaked to a Twitter mob days after Russell's employment ended with the Southern Baptist Convention. Not after his benefits ended, but that's another story. But days after his actual employment ended, and more importantly, more instructively, mere days before a watershed historic meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. There is no question in any objective person's mind that is what this is about. Within that letter, Russell intimates that he had hoped to be at the annual meeting to offer a motion to call for a third-party independent inquiry of all this, but, but this man supposedly with the courage to stand couldn't hang around Southern Baptist employment for two and a half more weeks to use the presidency of the ERLC to make that motion. That is unbelievable, and rightly so, because it's just not the truth. That's a really good point. Did you catch the part where he said he did this not after his benefits ended? (laughs) So he's taking Southern Baptist benefits. He's fine with the Southern Baptist Convention paying for his benefits as he slams it and tries to, you know, set the room on fire as he heads over to the liberals at Christianity Today. Final cut, what is the future of the SBC? Again, Pastor Mike Stone, cut eight. Southern Baptists are facing a watershed moment. We're at a fork in the road. And in the next several days, Southern Baptists have a choice to make. And it's not a choice between believing Mike Stone or believing Russell Moore. It's a choice about the future of the Southern Baptist Convention. Do you want to continue to embrace this top-down hierarchical approach where big-name power brokers of the SBC elite rule with an iron fist and seek to utterly destroy anybody that would simply disagree with them about a matter. That's not the Southern Baptist Convention that I see. I do not see a Southern Baptist Convention filled with racists, white nationalists, and those who would seek to cover up child sexual abuse. Those are not the Southern Baptist leaders that I've ever known, and that is not the Southern Baptist Convention uh, that I see on a daily basis as a local church pastor. I don't know how he was so measured. Boy, what self-control. I was very impressed by how he conducted himself and the way that he spoke on that video. I can't say that I could have kept it together the way he did. Maybe it took several takes. I don't know. But I thought that that was a very measured response, but some bombshells of of statements, I would say, about Russell Moore in the letter. By the way, Ronnie Floyd, another big SBC elite, uh, mentioned in this letter, said in a statement, I have received a copy of the letter from former ERLC President Russell Moore to our current SBC President, J.D. Greer. Some of the matters referenced occurred prior to my coming here in this role. For those matters of which I was president, I do not have the same recollection of these occurrences as stated. I do take seriously allegations in this letter, which may raise concern for Southern Baptists. He doesn't have the same recollection. That's funny. So neither Mike Stone nor Ronnie Floyd have the same recollection as Russell Moore. So who's telling the truth? And probably the best argument against Russell Moore at this juncture is the fact that he's touting 
David French, well, actually, David French is touting Russell Moore. He's out there defending Russell Moore. Oh, these warnings should bring a reckoning. You know, when you have to take David French and, and throw him out there in the public sphere in order to defend you, in my mind, you've already lost the argument. That guy's wrong on everything. He's wrong on everything. He's the one who, who celebrates the blessings of liberty pertaining to Drag Queen Story Hour. I really don't care about anything David French says. We got to leave it there. Pray for the Southern Baptist Convention. No matter what kind of Christian you are, they need our prayers. And thank you for being with us on Janet Meffer Today. Today.